Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 66. While this is an Old Testament passage, this is uh, a departure from our survey that we've been doing of the uh, seeing the gospel evident throughout the Old Testament. Uh, but today will be more topical, where we will look at God from a, a perspective, uh, from a, a unique perspective, uh, as He's revealed Himself in His Word. Now, I'm not one who usually is given to uh, allowing Hallmark to determine the ecclesiastical calendar or, or what I preach, but from time to time. Uh, our culture has already predisposed to certain things, and so if the culture is predisposed to be thinking about certain things, I'm all in favor of looking at them if it helps us to go deeper and enhance and improve our uh, appreciation of our God, who He is, and what He's done for us. And that's our, our intent this morning as we look at uh, this passage uh, and uh, several that we'll be looking at. Isaiah 66, just sort of the context, we'll be looking at uh, reading verses 12 through 14 uh, as we get started this morning. At the end of the book of Isaiah, uh, the Lord is speaking. He's beginning to show the people some hope. He starts talking, he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, that which is yet to come. And along with the description of what is yet to come, there's a number of promises of God and the way he will relate and the benefits of, uh, of, to his people. And here in these verses, the Lord is uh, speaking about the promises that he is going to give to the New Jerusalem and through the New Jerusalem to uh, his people, all who are participants in the New Jerusalem. And so these are promises of what are yet to come, not only yet to come to Isaiah in his day, but are still yet to come in our day, uh, but there still is a truth, and there still is a taste of what we have in our presence today. Now that said, let's look to the Word of God. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her, her being Jerusalem, like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knee. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show indignation against his enemies. The word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come now to this time committing ourselves to hearing your word, learning your word. I, I pray that even more than that, we would hear your voice. Open our eyes that we may see you by your word and see you in a way that reminds us of your greatness. Help us, Lord, to be shaped by your word, your word alone, as your spirit impresses it upon us. Open our minds and open our hearts that your truth might not only become our knowledge, but it might be a shaping influence. Lord, you have promised your word never comes back empty. Be at work now to conform us to Christ. We pray in Jesus. Amen. Ancient Jewish rabbis had a, an old cute saying many of you have probably heard. God could not be everywhere, therefore he created mothers. English novelist William Thackeray had a similar phrase. He said, mother is the name for God on the lips and hearts of little children. Now, if you put the obvious heresies aside, I think there's a kernel of truth, an important truth, that we get that both of these statements convey. 
Because mothers reflect a beautiful part of God's nature and God's character. Now, it is true that God is a father. Jesus came, said, I have been sent from my father. I only do my father's will. And then he instructed us to to talk to God, to commune with God, and to pray to God using the words, our father. Radical that Jesus would share that. Scandalous of what he was not only embracing for himself, but calling others to embrace as well, that we should call God the creator of the universe, the one who was perfect and holy and majestic and very different than all of us who are fallen, broken, and finite, that we should call him Father. One of the reasons that people were uptight with Jesus, that he was that familiar and encouraged that kind of familiarity with God, and he made it very clear, God is our Father. The Apostle Paul picked up there and and he kind of reemphasized that when he was saying that those who belong to Christ, we do and we can cry out Abba, which is Aramaic for Daddy. Even an intimate term, Jesus used this phrase as well, but saying that when we are in Christ, when we are God's children, this is the type of relationship that we have with our Father God, that we can cry out to Him Abba in an intimate way, a possessive name. And so clearly... God is a father, and Scripture reveals him in that way. And yet here in Isaiah 66 and in other passages throughout the Scriptures, we find that God, who is certainly a father, he he likens himself to a mother. I mean, if you look at this passage that we read as we opened this morning, he talks in verse 13, he says this, "As as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. God's talking to a people who are discomforted because they live in a broken world. They've been displaced, and they're uncertain about the details of the future or what's going to come in the future, and God giving them hope by the promise of the new heavens and new earth. He's not only saying things will get better, but he's talking about his personal relationship with his people, and he says that my relationship with my people will be just like a mother who comforts those who are in need of comforting. God says that I'm going to do that to you, to my people. And so God here, very clearly, though God is a father, God is likening himself to a mother in this passage. And so in the scripture, we find that God likens himself to both a father and a mother. If you think about it, it only makes sense. I mean, at least it it makes sense to me that God would liken himself to both father and mother because it takes both images, both of what we normally project to be a father and a mother. It takes both to help us to have a fully developed Uh, understanding of who God is, what his personality is like, what his character is like, and, 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 and really understand how he has revealed himself fully. I mean, in fatherhood, we see certain aspects of God that we rightly celebrate. We think of the power of God and the authority of God, his strength, his provision, things that we tend to associate with, with fatherhood and, and strength and, and masculinity. Not only us in our culture, but cultures throughout the world, whether they're highly developed or whether they're very primitive, tend to associate those kinds of characteristics to fatherhood. At the same time, God reveals certain characteristics of himself that would really be more often associated with motherhood. We think of his gentleness and his sensitivity and his approachability Different characteristics that way that we don't normally associate with the strength and, and of the father, fatherhood, but we think of as reflecting the best of, of our, our mothers. And so when we look at the Scripture to, uh, to consider our God, it really takes both our impressions of motherhood and fatherhood to develop a 
complete understanding or a more complete understanding of, of who God is. And so this morning, I want to look at the mother-like heart of our Father God. Now, before some of you cringe too much, I want to make a caveat here. I am not saying God is a female. We're not going to be praying to Mother God. I'm not suggesting that. What I am doing is I'm agreeing with theologian John Frame, who says this, Scripture describes God in both male and female terms, though the overwhelming preponderance of imagery is male. But as, as Frame points out, is God reveals himself as Father and like a mother. And so it's appropriate for us to consider God as he has revealed himself so that we would have an understanding of the nature of our God. And this morning, what I want to do is to consider some aspects, some attributes of God as he has revealed himself in the scripture that we might often associate with our mothers on this day where we are already predisposed to be thinking about our mothers and honoring our mothers. The first of those is this, is that our God is a God of comfort. He, he gives great comfort to us. That's what he's talking about in this particular passage. He's saying, as a mother comforts, I will, I will comfort you. Jesus picks up on that theme probably with some, uh, or, I mean, Paul picks up on that theme in 2 Corinthians 1. He says this, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What Paul is picking up here is that same idea that God has already promised, that he's going to be a comforter for his people. And Paul calls him the God of all comfort. And he's the one who brings us comfort. He has a purpose in the comfort. He comforts us in order that we may provide comfort for those who are around us who are in need. We can comfort those who are around us with the comfort that we have received from our God. God is the God of all comfort. As I think about that, it, it really, again, it, it makes sense. Where do kids go when they are hurt? Even with both parents are around, kids are usually inclined to run to mom when they've scraped their knee, bloodied their nose, bumped something. They cry and they, they run to mom, not usually to dad. Some of you may know the name John Perkins. John Perkins was a, uh, is a significant leader in the evangelical church. He has overcome a number of barriers, both in a, uh, racial within, and poor and poverty, and is a tremendous leader in helping the church reestablish ministries uh, among the poor. John used to be in Jackson, Mississippi, and he was in and out when I was there. I've had the opportunity to spend some time with him and hear some of his stories. And he shared the story one time about this very fact that he... He realizes that children just are prone to run to their mothers and rather than their fathers, and John confessed that that bugged him. And so he said at one time that he had one of his sons, and his sons were, you know, grew up to be strapping whole, I mean, they were all boys. One of his sons had done something, and, and he was tired of hearing his children run. He heard, them, heard a bang, and then he heard a, a child crying, and he realized somebody was going to get comfort, and he was sick of his wife being the one to get all the opportunities to bring comfort, so he decided he was going to do the comforting. And he was in a room between the rooms where his wife was sitting and where whatever happened had happened. And so when he heard the running of feet, John got up from his seat and he got to the doorway and he stood there, spread eagle, feet against the door, arms against the, just there, and he was hunched down, ready to both block and then provide hug, a hug to the child that was coming. And his son, who was running and screaming and crying out, Mom, 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 without breaking stride, 
went into a baseball slide, slid between his legs, popped on up, and continued on running, never missed a beat while John was just left there straddling the doorpost. Because kids are prone when they are beat up, when they are hurt, no matter how comforting and how much encouragement dad may be, when they are nicked up, they want comfort, and they know comfort comes from their mother. Well, our God is a comforter. and He comforts us when we bang our knees, skin our knees, bloody our noses, and whatever life's events and trials we have. God is God that says, I will be your comfort. I will comfort you as a mother comforts. I will comfort you. And Jesus embodies that very heart and the fact that he would be a tremendous comforter. Picking up on the image, I think, from Isaiah, Jesus, when he was, uh, was looking down over Jerusalem in, in Matthew 23, he's praying this prayer. But he's praying, but at the same time, he's talking to the city. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those God sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together. And as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus is reflecting the heart of God to bring compassion. What he's saying is you're a broken city, and you know that you're a broken city. There are a lot of pains. There's a lot of hurts that happen in this life. And as Jesus is looking down over that city, the object of his affection and his, and his love, he says, don't you understand how much I have just longed to just open my arms and to just embrace you and give you a hug? And he says, like a, like a mother hen with her chicks, just opens up her wings and covers them and comforts them and protects them. That's what I've longed to do for you. A teacher who grew up on a farm told a story of something that impacted him and helped him to understand Jesus' heart here. When he was a child, the family barn burned down. And the next day when the fire was out and they were out in the rubble and all of the uh, ashes he noticed an object that looked a little odd. He wasn't sure what it was, charred. And being a young boy, he went over and he, he kicked it, kicked it up. And out from underneath ran four baby chicks. And it was then he realized that the object that he had kicked was the mother hen that had been roasted by the fire. But what the mother had done in the fire, and they weren't able to get out, is it gathered, gathered the chicks under the wings absorbed the full heat of the, of the fire that charred and, and roasted the mother, but protected all of the hens as they were underneath her in the dirt. And he said that he never, never forgot the incident. And it helped him to understand what God means when he says, I will gather you under my wings. Jesus, as he's praying, that's saying, that's what I want to do, but that's what Jesus has actually done is because Jesus has covered us. He's covered us not so much with his wings but with his blood. We are hidden in Christ. We are covered and being cleansed by him because he has absorbed the full weight, the full heat. He took it all upon himself and protected us as we are now under him and we are in him and covered by him. It's also interesting that Jesus says, this is what I wanted to do, how I've longed to do this, but you we're not willing. It makes me wonder when I think about Jesus speaking there of the people in Jerusalem about how many of the discomforts that I experience, how many discomforts and pains that we all experience in this life, 
how often is it because we are so prone, we're so inclined to want to stand on our own two feet rather than simply being covered by the grace and the love of God that gives us comfort even in difficult circumstances. God says, I'm a God of comfort. This is what I long to do, is Jesus' word. This is what I promise to do, which is what God says to his people. This is our God. He is a God of all comfort. It's not hard to imagine some wondering then, well, then why isn't he making everything easy for me? I've got brokenness in every aspect of my life. Relationships are, are, are fractured. Work is threatened, if there at all finances, every aspect of my life, there's nothing that goes untouched. And if he's going to comfort me, if his job and his plan is to comfort me, why aren't things easy? Well, why God is a God of all comfort and he does do what he's promised, as he says, like a mother who comforts, he's got another purpose and God is also preparing us for something. God makes preparation for us. Let me read from Deuteronomy. I like the way the NIV reads on this particular passage, so I'll just read from there. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. In a desert land he found him, in a barren and, and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young that spreads, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. This beautiful poetry that Moses has offered to us about what, what God is like. It's first, he, he reminds us, the God of all comfort. Here's, here's what he thinks of his people. He says, you are the treasured inheritance. That's what God considers his people to be a treasured inheritance. He says that you're like the apple of his eye. He guards and he protects. Those are his words that he speaks to us through Moses in, in this passage in Deuteronomy. That's the relationship that God has and the affection that God has for his people. But the illustration that Moses uses is also interesting because there's something more there than we are prone to see when we first look at it. Those things being very real, the apple of his eye, the object of his affection, the, the, the great inheritance. And then he uses the image of, a, of an eagle and its relationship to the eaglets and help us to understand what God is doing. Now, one of the things I have enjoyed and haven't yet gotten used to and hope I never do is seeing the eagles that are around here. A couple weeks ago, I was driving on Green Springs Road and had an eagle probably for 50, 75 yards leading me. It seemed like the wingspan took up the whole, whole, uh, uh, whole road. Uh, but under the canopy of the trees, it just waited till it soared off. And it's just a, an amazing, amazing sight. And it's a similar imagery that, that, uh, that Moses is using here for us to understand what God is like. And he talks about the image of the eagle caring for its young ones, the eagle that hovers over its young and spreads its wings to catch them and, on its pinions. And yet there's something that's interesting that I read some time ago about the way that eagles uh, function with their young. The eagles raise their young. The mother eagle not only will comfort and provide and feed for their young, but as they get to a certain point of their development, the mother eagle, and it's referred to in this passage, stirs up the nest or turns up the nest. Basically, the mother eagle dumps the eaglets out of the nest and forces them to be falling from their nest toward the ground. They learn the law of gravity, I suppose, and then right before they crash, 
the mother eagle will swoop on down and then pick them up, put them back in the nest, care for them, and tend to them again until the next time that she turns the nest over and they go as the, these eagles are, are uh, little eagles are, are falling to the ground, squawking and sh- screeching, assuming that the end is near. The mother swoops down, picks them up, puts them back, cares for them until, yeah, she does it again and again and again. Now, if that was one of us, somebody would call the Department of Family and Children's Services on us for cruelty to our children. But in God's creation with eagles, it's not a matter of cruelty. It's a matter of helping those eagles to develop into what they are supposed to be. It's, part, it's built into... Uh, their instinct, and this is how they make them learn to soar. Because while the eagles are falling and assuming that they're undone and they get put back up, they are learning the law of gravity. They're also learning something else, and eventually each of the eagles at the time will come where they will spread their own wings, and they will not need their mother to come down and grab them and protect them. They begin to soar on their own. And it's part of that process of preparing them for what God had created them to be, what they're supposed to do, that the mother upturns the nest so that they will be what they should be. And in this passage, God is saying, or Moses is saying, that God is like that mother with his people who loves, who tends, who protects, who carries, who spares. But the reality is in our life, every once in a while, maybe sometimes more frequently than we would like, God upturns our nest and we feel like we're dumped out and we feel like we're about to crash. And like the eagles that are screaming and screeching, we scream and screech. We may even cuss and a few other things while we're going. And we're all the way wondering, what in the world is our Father God doing to us? Why is he allowing this? Because we're certainly, doesn't he understand that we're about to crash? But every time we're about to crash, we're spared. I know that. Not only from my own experience, but for you, even if I don't know your story, because you're here. He has never let you crash and be undone. But it's in that process of having our nest upturned that we also learn and grow and expand and bloom into what it is that God has created us to be. Even the uniqueness happens because of the experiences where our nests are upturned. It shapes us and prepares us. Broken world that it is, we are shaped. And God says, I'm there with you all along. I'm there and I will cover you, I will comfort you, and I'm preparing you. We need to remember that when our nest is upturned, it's God who is over all things. He's not calling us to crash. He's teaching us to soar. So God is a God of all comfort, but God is also preparing us. It's it's part of the expression of his love. But God also demonstrates great acceptance for us. You've heard a phrase that says, there's a face that only a mother could love. I've never heard anybody say, there's a face only a father could love. Too many dads said to their kids, particularly the boys, you're ugly. You know, and that's just, they just point that out. I was inclined to do that until my oldest son started looking a little too much like me, and then I decided that was, <laughs> was not a good practice. But mothers have an amazing ability to accept their child and to see something in them that perhaps others do not. Robert Fulton was an American inventor in the late 18th century or early 19th century. Apparently, he was not a particularly good student. 
writing of his own life, he talks about an early incident at school. His grades were horrible. He was probably misbehaving some, and the teacher became continually, increasingly exasperated. Finally, the teacher called for a conference, and so this tutor that had been teaching Fulton, trying to educate him to make him into a, a useful citizen, met with his mother and just said, your son cannot complete even the simplest of instructions. He does not participate. His mind is wandering. He, just, he is just a poor student and something along the lines of uh, that, uh, you know, he's destined for, for tremendous failure. And his mother, listening to the tutor for just a moment, finally had reached a boiling point where she looked the tutor in the eye and she said, my boy's head, sir, is so full of original notions that there is no vacant chamber which to save the contents of your musty, all meaningless books. Fulton said at the time, writes later on, years later, I was only 10 years old when that happened. But my mother seemed to be the only person who understood my natural bent toward mechanics, my natural aptitudes. See, sometimes only a mother can spot those types of characteristics. Only a mother will stand up for her child when uh, everybody else seems to be putting them down. Those are characteristics of, of great mothers, and God has an acceptance for his people. He sees you. He knows how he has made you. He's made you unique. He's made you according to his plan. He's made you in a way to glorify him, even if no one else thinks that it's even possible. But he sees you and he's endowed you with whatever it is that he's wanted to endow you with. Dwight Eisenhower, celebrated general, president of the United States. There's an old story about Inauguration Day. After he had sworn his oath of office and given his speech, a reporter had come up to Eisenhower's mother and said, you must be very proud of your son this morning. And she said, which one? See, Dwight Eisenhower was third of seven boys. Now, I have to confess, I'm not sure if that's actually a true story, one of those apocryphal stories that sometimes preachers pass on to one another. And really, I don't care, because it's a great story. So we don't have to... <laughs> and it does illustrate a real point, whether that ever happened with Dwight Eisenhower or not. And something that you and I need to grab hold of. Do you know that when God looks at his children, he doesn't look at the Billy Grahams or the Martin Luthers and the Jonathan Edwards or whoever your spiritual hero may be and say, this is my son. And oh yeah, he's mine too. He doesn't look at you as the, oh yeah, he's mine too. God loves you. He knows you. He's made you. And like Mrs. Eisenhower isn't going to lift one above the other in terms of their affection. There are uniquenesses and roles. There are some who are abundantly gifted, some who seem to have life go easier than others, some who are honored, but that's not the standard by which God relates to those who are his children. God loves you. And there is no children who, child who is an afterthought. There is no pecking order in terms of God's love. Because our God has a tremendous acceptance for his people.
It's our God who's revealing to his people, not when they were on their best behavior, but when they were being scattered because of their own faithlessness. And they were wondering, what's next? Has God abandoned us? God, have you forsaken us? God, we know we're guilty. We understand why you may not love us anymore. Here's what God says through the prophet Zephaniah. The Lord your God is mighty to save. and He is with you. And he takes great delight in you. And he rejoices over you with singing. We sing a song with those lyrics from time to time. A friend of mine introduced those to his the church he served a number of years ago. And afterwards, this couple that was part of his church came up to him. Normally they were uh, a very cordial couple, but that day he realized it was something that just was off balanced. And they came very intensely and they said, we do not like that new song. And he said, which song do you mean? He said, the one that talks about God singing about us. He said, and and we just don't like those contemporary Christian songs. They're all a bunch of sappy things and they don't reveal, they don't reveal anything that's true about our God. My friend said, look, this is not a song that somebody up in Nashville wrote. This is a song that God himself wrote. That is a direct quotation from from the prophet Zephaniah. It's God who says that he is with you and he is mighty to save. It's God who says, here's how much I delight in you. I rejoice in you. I am singing over you. When you were here this morning singing praises to God, God says he was also singing over you. That's his delight in you. And when he's telling the people this, they are not now trying to reform themselves. They're not in their best behavior. He's telling a people who had been wayward, who had been faithless, who had wandered from their God, and he's saying, do you understand? Here's my affection for you. Even in their worst moments, God's singing and rejoicing over his children, those who are his children. If you are in Christ, you are his child. The Lord takes great delight in you. He doesn't take delight in your or my sin or where we are wandering or rebellious. It's not the issue, but his love never wavers, and he is delighted, and he rejoices over you. Finally, he has great patience with us. When I lived in Knoxville, I would like to go to the zoo. We had a tremendous zoo there. I haven't lived anywhere with a particularly good zoo since. I know Bush Gardens has one, and it's better than not having one at all. It's not quite, I think I'll have to drive up to Washington to get a, a full-blown zoo. But when I would go to the zoo, I would enjoy just the simple things. And I remember watching the tiger cubs with their mother, the tiger cubs pouncing and playing with one another. And every once in a while, they just seem to have this wild idea mom who was sleeping on her own, minding her own business, the tiger cubs would look at each other and they would both go and they would just pounce on her sleeping head. And then they would just claw at her when she would kind of gently push them away and still minding her own business. They would just kind of claw at her and scratch her or they would go and they would bite her. And periodically she just pushed them away in order that they would go do what they were supposed to do. But she was incredibly, incredibly patient. She would just take all of the blows, all of the scratches and Just take them upon herself and in her gentleness put the cubs where they needed to be. And as I think about that, I realize that a couple of things is that's a wonderful picture of the patience our God has for us. Because if you're anything like me, you have to admit that from time to time and probably more often than I care to admit or maybe even that I know, I'm just so inclined to scratch and nip and bite 
that my Father God. And he just takes it. He absorbs it. It makes me think of Jesus who beautifully absorbed all of the scrape and the heat and the weight of our sin. Mocked and spat upon, his response was to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'll lay my life down for them. I'll take upon myself all that they deserve, all the brutality, everything that they deserve. I'll take that upon myself. See, that's who our God is. He puts up with the hurts and the biting and the scratches. Not only that, he willingly takes it. He absorbed it in order that we might not only be forgiven, but we would be set free. Because in Christ, we're not only that we see a God who can take it, but Jesus says, I laid my life down to set my sheep free. And that what he explains to us is not only did he take the punishment that we dished out and that we deserved, but then when we have believed and trusted in him and we belong to him, not only are we forgiven, but we are declared to have been as innocent and perfect and holy as he is himself. That is counted as ours. Our God is incredibly patient with us and pours out his love in demonstrable ways. That love that rejoices over you and is singing over you in his patience as we are growing to be more like Christ. But that love never ends. Paul picks up this theme in Romans 8 and he says, now you have some idea of what that love is like. Now, what would separate you from that love Paul says nothing nothing in this world nothing in any other world nothing in the physical realm nothing in the spiritual realm there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that has been given to us in Christ Jesus there's nothing God is incredibly patient purposeful accepting and he is at work These are only a few of the characteristics we could go on and on with this, mor uh, this morning, but let me just kind of sum it up this way. First, I want to make sure we get a couple of things straight. I'm not saying God is a female for the academic type. God reveals himself mostly as a male, but he does reveal himself as both, male, as both being like both a father and a mother. And the distinctions are necessary for us to have a proper understanding of God's personality. We must be able to think of God's strength and attributes we consider to be fatherlike and his gentleness and faithfulness that we tend to think of in the best of our mothers. For that reason alone, if for no other reason, for that reason alone, a conservative, faithful Christian can never suggest that women are somehow less than equal. Because both are necessary to understand what God is like. Attributes of both are necessary. So on this Mother's Day, it is right to honor your mother, not only according to God's law and not only according to the law of Hallmark. But it's right that you would honor your mother. But what I want to encourage you to do and challenge you to do is to recognize the best of what you are celebrating, the best of what you are honor, is also a reflection of our Father God with a mother-like heart. Let me pray. Our Father, we do come this morning with great thanksgiving for your word that is not only explicit in its instructions, but graphic in its illustrations. Father, help us to ponder rightly what you have revealed about yourself. 
that we would not be guilty of minimizing your character in any way, in any form, nor are we guilty of projecting upon you. But as we consider your word, help us to understand your heart as well as your power, your grace in all of its aspects and dimensions. For only, Lord, as we begin to understand it, And we begin to relate to you and respond to you for who you are. Like the apostle, I pray that we would be a people who would grow to understand how high and wide and long and deep is your love for us in Christ Jesus. That in response, we may love you. And that we may be shaped more and more to think your thoughts after you long to do what you would have us to do to experience the joy of walking in your ways and even greater joy of walking in fellowship with you. Lord, bless us this day. We pray in Jesus. Amen.